Uh, one of the problems with the fall of humanity, and there is a lot of problems with the fact that humanity is fallen and sinful, but one of the problems with it is nothing is untouched by sin. So our mental abilities, like our intellect and our emotional intelligence, are all tarnished by sin. We are not completely rational creatures. Uh, we are not, uh, in many ways, uh, moral creatures. We have been touched in such a way that we are sinful totally, completely. It's not that we can't do anything good, but rather that sin has tarnished everything, that even the best things that we do still fall short. It still has that taint. It still has that poison. And then add on to this that there are two different kinds of people that God have made, men and women. Amen, yes, yes. But we are not the same. And the fall has touched us differently. We are very different creatures. There is a reason why 92% of the prison population is male. There's a reason why violent crime is committed overwhelmingly by males. That's all fine. If you say that, you're not going to get in trouble. But there's also a reason why 70% of divorces are initiated by women. Why? Because we're different and we are sinful in different ways. And often we face the same temptations, they converge, we are tempted by the same things. Men and women both love money, don't we? We both love our reputation and status. But then at other times, our temptations are a little bit different. The things that tempt us fall in different categories. And here, Peter is addressing a topic that really grates on the nerves of our enlightened 21st century years. Trust me, write our passage on a placard and walk down a city, walk down Newcastle, walk down Brankston, and you'll find pretty quickly that you are going to get stopped and you are going to get abused for the things that are written on that placard. The topic of submission within marriage is very, very hot. And I want to appeal to you as your pastor, that if your heart kicks back at this passage, I want you to doubt the feelings of your heart more than you doubt God's Word. I want you to doubt the things that kick up against God's Word more than you doubt the goodness and the fruitfulness and the love that God communicates to you here in His Word. Because we have been conditioned to think a certain way about marriage. And it has caused shipwreck after shipwreck and broken family after broken family. So just for a second here today, go with God's Word. See what God's Word has for you, and maybe it really does have something good for you. God has more for His church, and He has a beautiful design that He wants to put before you today. And today, Paul is going to, uh, Peter, sorry, is going to be addressing women, and in particular, married women. And my three points for my sermon is this. Number one, the enticement of control. Number two, the enticement of affirmation. And number three, the enticement of security. And these three things, I think, Paul, uh, Peter is addressing. I'm going to keep calling him Paul. Peter is addressing because it is a specific temptation that is more common to women than it is to men. And so let's read our passage today. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. 
Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And so in Peter so far, we've seen that Peter is addressing the various groups at their particular point of temptation. He's warning them not to give themselves over into this temptation and not only by doing that to dishonor the people that God has placed in authority. But not only does it dishonor those people that he's placed in authority, but it dishonors him when you kick against the goads. We find in scripture, for instance, that there are four spheres of government that are established by God. And Peter kind of uh, addresses them. I've got a graphic up for you. Someone's going to put it up. Here's something I made. And I think it shows the four spheres of government. We've got Uh, state, church, and family, and in the middle is self. Self Self-government is at the center of all of these things. Why? Because if you can't govern yourself, then how can you be expected to govern your family, to govern the church, or to govern the state? And so all of these things revolve around the government of self, and all people are called to govern themselves, to have self-control, to wield their bodies and to wield their mind for the good of not only themselves, but their community and for their love for God and for his glory. And he addresses wives at the point of temptation that can quickly seize hold of them. And this is the temptation to take control, to seize the reins, to be in charge within your household, especially when your husband is not doing what you want him to do. When he's not doing a very good job, if he isn't leading well, if he isn't obeying the word of God, and especially if he's putting up a stubborn resistance to the gospel, the temptation comes to every woman to get in control, because this guy is doing a terrible job. Now, this is a point in which the Bible addresses constantly. In the New Testament, in almost every letter written to the church, there comes alongside it an encouragement to wives to throw themselves into the task of submitting to their husbands and to respecting their husbands. Those two words, submission, respect, show up constantly. Have a look. I'm going to give you a brief overview. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11.3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And here, Peter is likewise addressing the same issue. Now, I had a fun time creating graphics today. Here's another one. Here's what I mean. Here's what the Bible talks about when we're talking about the family. You see, the outer circle is the father. The inner circle is the mother. And then right in the center are the children. And this is God's design for a well-functioning household where both the mother and the child are protected. And the father is kind of this outer circle. That's the external focus that both works and keeps the garden that God has given to him. And his authority is not used like separately over here and then here are his underlings, but rather his authority is used in such a way that he uses his strength and all the things that God has given him for the service of the good of his family. And that is what Christian leadership looks like, isn't it? It is service for the good of those that are underneath you. And so this is the kind of uh, family that we want to hold up here in church. And I feel like this graphic really gets you a good kind of understanding of what's going on. 
And whenever the Bible repeats something as frequently as this, we have to pay attention. As Christians, all of us, men and women, we find ourselves in relationships of submission. It's part of the Christian life. We are all in submission. None of us can sit here and say there is no relationship that we have in this world where we are not under some sort of submission. I know there are a lot of workers here. You are under submission to your bosses. We all are under submission to the Australian government. There's no prime minister in this room last time I checked. We are all under submission to those that are in our church, and we are all under submission to those that are in our family. But most importantly, we are under the submission of God. All of our relationships are submission. You can't get away from it. It's baked into the Christian religion. No one here is outside of submission. And so, ladies... When we talk about submitting to your husband, we are saying that you are in a particular thing, in a particular realm, in which submission and authority works with the husband being the head and the wife submitting to her head. But listen, that does not mean that you submit to any other man. There is no man in this church building right now who you have to submit to other than your husband and to the elders within your church and to the state, what you find yourselves in. But just any random dude that you find in the church, you do not have to submit to that man. You do not have to obey that man. He can't tell you what to do. He has no authority over you whatsoever. Remember that. Because if a guy comes and thinks, oh, he's a guy, you have to defer to him. No way. You're his equal within the church. He has no authority. You do not have to obey. And so why does the apostle devote so much energy and time to the direct instruction of married women? It brings us all the way back to the fall. Because when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God brought some curses upon them. Firstly, cursed the serpent. Then he cursed Eve. And finally, he cursed Adam. And what we need to do is really focus on the curse that he brought upon Eve. Because one of the curses he brought upon her was a divide between her and her husband. Have a listen to Genesis 3.16. God says this, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This same Hebrew construction shows up one more time, only one more time in the Bible, and it happens a few verses later in Genesis 4.7. This is God speaking to Cain just before he murders his brother Abel. This is God saying, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And here we go. Here's the construction. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God is warning Cain, sin has a strong desire to control you. It's really a desire to master him. And likewise, God is saying to Eve, you are now going to have a strong desire to want to control your husband, but he must rule over you. And thus was born in Genesis 3.16, the battle of the sexes. And we see the fruits of it to this day, don't we? Ever since this day, any relationship between a man and woman comes with all manner of conflict. Miscommunication, misrepresentation, clamoring to dominate within the relationship, uh, asserting your needs over the needs of your spouse. And if you found yourself at an absolute loss with your spouse and unable to understand them or their motives, what you are experiencing is Genesis 3.16. Who here in their marriage can say that this is not a defining feature in our sin? It really is a curse. It's a real curse. And the book of Proverbs warns young men to steer clear of women who have given themselves over to this desire. As Solomon remarks at how easy it is for a married woman to dominate a young man. 
Uh, I've kind of patched some verses together here. It's not the complete passage. We'll be here all day if we read it, but Proverbs 7, verses 10 to 18. Behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens uh, from Egyptian linen. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. That young man is under her spell. He's dominated, under her control. He'll do anything she wants him to do. Likewise, Solomon has some interesting comments for young men about their future marital choices. And he gives it a little bit of a warning. And this is the kind of stuff that most pastors won't read in church, but I'm going to do it anyway. Proverbs 21.9. It is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 27.15 and 16. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. It's kind of like a rock in a stream and the wife is the stream and she batters against him like a torrent until he gives way to the water. And now this isn't in the wife's best interest. She shouldn't want a man who gives in, who was washed away down the stream, who gets eroded over time, who can't even face the trial of his wife, let alone the trials of the world. That's not what a woman should want in her marriage. She should not want a man who cannot stand firm, especially against her. And so often, that insecurity leads wives to test their husbands. Are you really firm? Is this really who you are? Are you the man that you say you are? And it it sometimes happens unconsciously. And the men fail. And the wives freak out. And they try even harder to prove, no, he is strong. He will push back. And he gives way again. She undermines her own family stability and durability. And this is because a righteous woman is one of the most potent blessings that any family can receive. And anytime there is a potent blessing in the Bible, remember that if you abuse that blessing, it becomes equally as potent of a curse if it goes the other way. For instance, sex is a potent blessing. We know from God it is a very potent blessing, but how warped can it get and how quickly can it become a curse when it is taken outside of God's design? The book of Proverbs, you may think after reading those passages, the book of Proverbs has a negative view of women. It does not. The book of Proverbs has an amazing view of women. Have a listen to Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. A wife is the very favor of God. That's high praise. Proverbs 31.10. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. Amen. For the women in our church, that is true for. Amen. Thank you for being this woman. The Bible recognizes the immense value and power that each woman possesses, either to destroy or to build, to nurture or to neglect, to wear down or to strengthen. Proverbs 14.1, the wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Now, when is the temptation, the strongest, ladies, to seek to kind of take the reins and get into control? It's when you think your husband's doing a bad job and times that by a hundred if you think you can do a better job than him. Because you will try to take the reins, won't you? I mean, it doesn't even get even worse if your husband isn't even a Christian. He doesn't even believe in God. And Peter is focusing on the temptation to try that women have to try to hurry along their husbands. 
you know, come on, get out the door, get to church, believe in Christ, do all the things that God is calling you to do. And they nag, they nag him about the things of God and they expect to win him over to the faith with this tactic. And Peter's saying it is a wrong tactic. Don't go down that road. And most women, they do it in love, right? They love their husbands. They want their husbands to believe. They want their husbands to know Jesus, to be saved. This is admirable. This is the right attitude. This is what we want women to want for their husbands. But they must remember that it is because, uh, just because they are Christians and daughters of the Most High God does not mean that the establishment of marriage has changed all of a sudden, that God has now put them in charge, that God has flipped the script because their husbands aren't Christians. I think Peter deliberately phrases it here as, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, right? Rather than, he could have said, husbands that do not believe. But he was very deliberate, I think, in saying, husbands that do not obey the word. Why? Because some women find themselves in Christian marriages with husbands who are not behaving like Christian husbands. They're they're not living up to the profession that they made, their profession of faith in Christ. These husbands might be lazy, or they might be angry. They might shirk their responsibility as the spiritual head of the household. They might fail to train up your children in the way they should go. And sometimes this kind of person could be even more dangerous to your family than a non-Christian husband. And so what can a woman do? Does she throw up her hands in frustration? Does she give up on her man? By no means. Instead, Peter gives to wives a much more potent weapon to wield in the battle for their husband's souls. Both of these kinds of men, whether they are a lazy Christian man who do not obey the word or non-Christian men who do not know God, they can be one without a word. Yes, that means without any nagging, without one word of complaint, nor one comment or one mean-spirited jab at his character. Peter says they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see what? Your respectful and pure conduct. Those two things are key. The Apostle Peter knows his Bible very well, and he understands the potent blessing that an excellent wife is. He encourages these women who have been transformed, redeemed, and indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit to let their light shine before their husband. He wants their husbands to see the love of God radiating off them, to see the sacrificial care they exhibit for their people that are in their house. And Peter wants these husbands to feel honored and respected by these women. And that's why Peter underlines here your respectful conduct. Be respectful to your husband. And in the context, does he deserve it? (laughs) No, this guy doesn't deserve it. He doesn't obey the word. What has he earned from this Christian woman? Doesn't matter. Peter says here, be respectful to your husband because respecting him confers respectability. Disrespecting him confers disrespectability. Someone someone can correct me on that one. (laughs) But treat him as a dignified man. And yeah, trust me, ladies, if this man really is half the ogre you think he is, it will cause him to rise up to the challenge. Leading the family will become a joy to him and not a chore. And when that key shift happens in your household, man, watch your husband go. See what he can accomplish. And this will get through to your man's heart more than anything else. There's a famous quote from the Catholic missionary, St. Francis Xavier, and evangelicals love to dunk on this quote. Don't get me wrong, it's a a terrible quote. He says this, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Now, 
we can very quickly throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because we go to it and we say, not preach words. The gospel is about communicating words. You have to share the gospel for someone to believe in Jesus. Amen. True. Yes. But it doesn't mean that your pure conduct, that your respectable conduct, that your way of life isn't preaching something. It is preaching something. It is preaching whether this gospel that you claim to believe in is true or false. If you're saying that God will indwell you by the Holy Spirit and transform you and redeem you and change you from the inside out, and here you are tearing the household down, what are you preaching? You're preaching that you do not even believe this message that you're proclaiming. Augustine often talked about his mother, Monica. And if you read his writing, she shows up a lot and he loves his mum. But I want you to put yourself in the shoes of this woman, Monica. She had a pagan husband when she came to faith in Christ. And this pagan husband undermined her Christian upbringing of her son at every turn. In fact, her husband encouraged her son, Augustine, to go be with as many women as he could. And when he went to the academy, which you can think of as a university, he lived the wild life that most university students in our culture live. And he went as far away from his mother as possible. And yet, not only did Augustine come to faith and become one of the giants of the faith, Augustine's father also, at the end of his life, professed faith in Christ. Have a listen to what Augustine says. He's referring to his mother. He says, she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you. How? By her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. What amazing words from Augustine. And he says, finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. I don't know about you, but I want to meet this woman. What a testimony. What a woman. Ladies, the word of God is true. Believe it. Don't think that three weeks of this is going to transform your household. This is a way of life. You may be like Monica. It may take you to your husband's dying day. But just focus on being the godly woman that God calls you to be and watch that mustard seed grow. Sow those little seeds and you might be stunned at what your household and marriage can turn into. But if your husband takes no notice and he never changes his way, always remember that God sees what you do in secret. And if no one else notices, if your pastor doesn't notice, if the ladies in your life don't notice, remember that God does and he will reward you in secret. Just like every other sphere of authority, this submission has limitations. Your husband is not absolute. He cannot command you to sin. He cannot, you, your allegiance is to God. But as much as possible, you honor your husband. But if you find yourself in an abusive marriage, whether a physically or a sexually abusive marriage, remember that God has provided two other spheres of authority, the state and the church. Use them. Run to them. Whether it's contacting your church elders or, if necessary, calling the police. Just, you know, remember that the state and the church have limited authority, so does your husband. Always remember that. Okay, we're up to point two. I know this has been quite, quite a ride, um, but we're going to get into it. Point two, uh, the enticement of affirmation. Let's pick up from verse three. 
Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, there's a strong enticement, a strong temptation for women to adorn themselves in such a way as to be noticed. They spend a lot of time on their appearance. They devote a lot of energy to their external adorning. The Australian beauty market is roughly $22 billion a year. That is a huge industry. That's like one of the top players is just the Australian beauty market. It shows it's a high priority in our culture. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We adorn the things that are our treasure. We put energy into the things that we value above all else. You can learn a lot about what a person values by how they spend their money, how they spend their time, and how they spend their energy. Their wealth will flow to their treasure. And Peter is not saying that a woman should not braid her hair, and he's not saying that she shouldn't wear jewelry, but rather his major concern is that what is your point of emphasis? What are you adorning? What is your energy going into? Where is your treasure? Where is the center of your identity? Is a woman valuable because she's externally beautiful? Or is she valuable because her soul is beautiful to God? This is not to say that women shouldn't desire to be beautiful. God made them this way. Ecclesiastes 3, chapter 11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Women are the glory of mankind and their beauty is obvious and plain to anyone with eyes to see. Peter's point is simply saying that a woman's outer beauty ought to be a reflection of her inner beauty. What good is a whitewashed tomb or a gold ring in a pig's snout? Godly women are beautiful from the inside out, not the outside in. And all wise women remember, as Solomon notes in Ecclesiastes, beauty is on a timer. Our society puts so much value and so much stock in youthful beauty. It's so common that you notice women who are older and older wearing clothing that teenagers wear. In fact, I was at Charlestown recently and just walking around, I'm like, like at some point, lady, like you've got to just play into the dignity of what God has given you and not dress like you're 14 years older. I just, it just blows my mind. And if your sense of value and importance is in your external appearance, then you will find yourself in a world of trouble as your beauty fades. Because it will. You can't hold on to it forever. And this is why putting your entire sense of self on your public perception is not only impossible, but it's dangerous. If you become addicted to people-pleasing, you can become addicted to flattery and ongoing affirmation and likes and comments and right swipes, you will find yourself becoming more and more anxious as your beauty fades. You become, find yourself becoming more and more dejected and depressed the more and more that beauty seems to fly out the door. And Peter says, unlike your external beauty, your internal beauty is what? Imperishable. It doesn't perish with time. It doesn't just go away. Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Amen. In a world where everyone voices their opinions, keep your peace. In a world where everyone is harsh and judgmental, be gentle and kind. In a world where external beauty is valued, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Women who focus on their inner self mature like wine. They get better and better with age. They grow more compelling by the passing year. 
But women who focus on their outer self turn to vinegar as their beauty fades and all that is left is a shell of a person, self-centered, selfish, and insecure. Christian women are not afraid of exchanging their beauty for God and His people. Why? Well, fruitful Christian women will find as they pursue their family and as they have children, those firm parts on their bodies might begin to sag. Where there was flawless skin, there will be stretch marks. You'll get wrinkles, grey hairs, double chins, arm flaps, crow's feet, Yeah, yeah. I really want to build you guys up, eh? And yet all of those things are not markers of a woman without value. They're markers of a fruitful woman. They're markers of a woman of great respect and value. It's a woman who has given her body to her people and she has produced much fruit. If you think God looks astray at that, you are wrong. It is the glory of a beautiful woman who has adorned herself in godliness. And so, ladies, when you feel that temptation and enticement to be affirmed as beautiful and valuable to the culture, remember that if you belong to God, you are precious to Him. You are valued by Him. You are loved by Him. And He sees that inner person and He looks on the heart. Men look at the outward appearance People look at the outward appearance, but what does God say? He looks at the heart. Women who adorn themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit have an imperishable beauty, precious to their great king. Do not turn your nose up at that. Point number three, the enticement of security. Let's pick up from verse five. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter is going to turn to a great, good and godly example for women to kind of get their teeth into and grab a hold of. And that is Sarah. Just like all the men in the Bible, Sarah is not perfect. There are no perfect people in the Bible, bar one, Jesus. And so we can look down to like David, us men, we can look to David and Abraham, we can get some good, good things from them. And ladies, you guys can look back too. But we know they're not perfect. Abraham's not perfect, David's not perfect, Sarah's not perfect. There are things we definitely don't want to emulate. But Peter has one thing that he wants to commend to you about Sarah as a holy woman. She submitted to the plan and call on Abraham's life, didn't she? Think about being Sarah for a second. Your husband just tells you that God has appeared to him and has called him and his whole family out into a foreign land, a pagan land, where you do not speak the language, you do not know who they are, you don't even know where you're going. And he says to Sarah, do you want to come? Now, This would have caused a lot of uncertainty, wouldn't it? This would have been a nightmare for a lot of women that I know. To leave goods and kindred, to travel into danger and peril. What would it have been? Frightening, wouldn't it? When God called Abraham to have a child by Sarah, she could have given up hope in God and not submitted to the plan, couldn't she? But instead, she called Abraham her Lord. She obeyed Abraham as her husband and submitted to the plan that God had for him 
and also for her. She is the mother of the covenant of grace. She has given birth to many daughters who also hope in God and have the same faith as her. Peter holds her up as the example. She followed Abraham, she obeyed him, she submitted to his leadership, she wasn't perfect. For instance, when insecurity seized her and she was frightened, what did she do? She took control and said to Abraham, take my handmaiden, Hagar. And we know what that ended up in. She had moments of weakness. She's not a superwoman. She's like the rest of us, right? But notice, it didn't end up defining who she was, did it? She was the woman, we know her now, as the woman who gave her life to serve God and her household, even to a fault. Sometimes she obeyed Abraham's bizarre plans to call you know, to say, oh, I'm Abraham's sister, and that did not work out very well. But the last word Peter has for Christian women is this, you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And these two things go hand in hand. You can't live a fruitful life when you are in fear. If you are in fear, a fearful person, you cannot live a fruitful life, and you can't truly be fearless if you do not embark on the terrifying task of being fruitful in Christ. I hope that made sense. The natural question is this, what frightening things is Peter talking about here? It's clear from the context that it's about giving up control. Sarah had to go into the unknown. She had to follow the promises of God. And ladies, so will you. You will have to give up a lot of security, control and safety if you want to be a Christian woman. You have to count up the cost of following Jesus. And Sarah followed Abraham into a lot of uncertainty. Why? Not because Abraham was great, not because she looked at Abraham and thought, he's going to keep me safe. You know what he did? He said, oh, whenever we go anywhere, make sure you call me your sister just so nothing bad happens to me. He wasn't the kind of guy that necessarily you want to say, oh yeah, that's the guy I want to head out to some unknown land with. Why did she go out? Because she believed in God and she trusted in Him. And this is what it looks like to be a woman who trusts in God. When do you feel the temptation to run your household the most? When you're feeling insecure? When you don't like what your husband is doing? You think he's doing a bad job? When your needs are not being met? When do you feel the temptation to most adorn your physical appearance over the inner person? You see, when uh, relationships break down and divorces happen and relationships break up, what happens to the woman after she breaks up with her man? All of a sudden she's in the gym, makeup goes on, right? She's out there trying to attract people. Why? Because she's insecure. When you aren't as popular as you used to be, when you aren't as desired, when men no longer flirt with you and pay attention to you, that's when you feel the temptation, right? When do you feel the temptation to most nag your husband? When you're insecure. Hope in God. Care more about what he says than what others say. Do not fear the things that terrify you. Do not fear that you're not good enough, that you're not getting the life you always wanted, that you're no longer being desired by men, that you're not being appreciated by others, and that you're not having your needs met. These things are indeed terrifying, aren't they? But yet it didn't overwhelm the holy women of the Bible. Sarah obeyed her husband and entered into the unknown. To her, it was for her Lord, and wherever he went, she followed. And what God called Abraham to, she knew that she was being called to it as well. Listen to Genesis 15 verse 1. 
After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. It would be folly to think that these words were for Abram and for Abram alone. These words were for Sarah too. God was not just the God of Abraham, but of his whole household and of his wife Sarah. And here is the words, do not fear. Ladies, do not fear. God is your shield. He is your reward and it will be very great. You are redeemed, rescued, ransomed, protected and secure in Christ. You have a refuge that is unshakable and a life that is imperishable. Nothing can take away your hope, whether it's disobedient husbands or fading beauty or scorn or ridicule. Nothing can take away your inheritance, which is to be yours in Christ Jesus. You are loved. You are cared for deeply by your God. And he has a great plan for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the women that are here in this church. Lord, I thank you that you called them out of darkness and into your marvelous light. That you equipped them and furnished them with various gifts and skills and talents. And you called them into your church to be fruitful. And Father, I know for some of these women, there's a lot of insecurity and there's fear. And Father, I pray that your great love will wash over them again, that your Holy Spirit would communicate the truth of the gospel to them, that they would remember that you see and that you care, and that, Lord, you are waiting to make them fruitful in their marriages and in their homes. We thank you, Lord, that you address us specifically, that you, not only, you don't just address us all as some gelatinous blob, but, Lord, you address us as men and women. And you call us to things that grate against our nerves, things we don't want to do in our sinfulness and in our, in our carnal hearts. But Lord, you have called us to many great things and you call our marriages and our communities to be wonderful, fruitful vines. And so Lord, I praise you, bless you for these women. I pray that they, this word would find a, a place in their heart, that they would seek to obey it with all their heart, soul, mind and strength and that they would love their husbands as they love themselves and love their children as they love themselves and love their people as they love themselves. Lord, I also want to pray for the husbands as well. I pray, Lord, the passage next week, that they would walk with their wife in an understanding way, that they would appreciate their wives as equal co-heirs and that they would seek to lead their families in wisdom and in truth. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all the good things you do. In Jesus' name, amen.